tonight. It's lesson number six in Malachi. So uh, last week we started in it to kind of run a little bit long. I knew that we were going to run somewhat long because of the subject matter. I, I knew that that was going to be some hard things. Last week, if you remember, uh, the Lord was uh, talking to them about their marrying of other people, people of other nationalities. And I just wanted to point out, was that talking about biracial marriage or is it something deeper than that? A lot of people will get hung up on that, thinking it's talking about people of different customs, people of a different skin color. But at the heart, you're going to find out if we're listening to God and we're obeying God, the skin color, uh, our shapes, the, the, uh, the texture of our skin, the slant of our eyes or the texture of our hair really has very little to do with things. It's about the heart condition. And the reason that God didn't want them marrying outside of the nation of Israel was because they were marrying unbelievers. They were marrying people who are pagans, and that uh, would come into the nation of Israel, and it was drawing people away. It was drawing the nation away uh, much as it did with uh, Solomon. If you remember, I, I made the quote that it says that he loved God. In the first uh, few chapters of, of Kings, it talks about him truly loving God. But then as he brought in all these different wives from other nations, other countries, and their gods, they drew his heart away from God. More often than not, that's what happens. When we are unequally yoked with someone, then more often than not, the person who is unsaved or outside of the will of God draws the saved person away. And a lesson to us, and especially to our children, is to be very careful who we get involved with. I, I love what um, Tommy Nelson preached. I, I heard him on a uh, sermon series one time talking about marriage. He was going through the Songs of Solomon and uh, he said, this is the way people ought to find a spouse. He says, you run for God just as hard as you can go. And as you're running, you look around to see if anybody's running with you, keeping pace and maybe running the same direction. And he said, if they happen to be of the opposite sex, maybe after a while you'll just kind of narrow that gap and run alongside of them. And if it looks like you're going to the same place, maybe this is who God wants you to go through life with. But too often times, people just jump into a marriage. They don't put a lot of thought into it. They get contained with um, well, what they believe is love. A lot of times, I believe it's lust, and it draws them away. And we've seen a lot of people drawn away from the church, away from a vibrant relationship with God because they got involved with someone who didn't have that same desire to follow after God. So God addressed that. Then he also addressed the issue of divorce. And we live in a world today where almost every single one of us is touched by divorce in some way. Uh, maybe we've been divorced ourselves, or maybe we have a child that's went through a divorce, or maybe we were in like my situation where my parents were divorced, and we've been touched with it. In fact, last Wednesday night, we saw out here in the parking lot what looked like a, be a child swap, where one parent was dropping up another ch uh, child to the other parent to spend the rest of the week with or to spend some time with. And we don't realize that our, if we get divorced or something happens in our relationship, how many other people are affected by that? And how long that they're going to be affected by that? I know that with my, my situation, with my uh, being raised by a stepfather, and I praise God for good stepfathers. There's good stepfathers in the Bible. I'm glad for people like Joseph. I'm glad that there's people who are willing to pick up the mantle and say, you know what, I'm willing to do the job. But at the same time, I do believe that there is a desire of God for it to be a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. And ideally, that's the way it should be. But we know that reality sets in. But for the nation of Israel, it was even more than that. They were just putting away their wives because, well, they were burning with lust after the, for lack of a better word, the heathen women, the women of other nations that would come in and they would want to take those for wives 
so they would put away their, uh, their wives. And one of the things that we'll see tonight is God specifically says, I hate divorce. There are a couple of reasons for divorce in the Bible. We looked at those last week. One of them is infidelity, uh, uh, some sort of sexual sin between the couple some way or another. The other one was if the unbeliever was willing to walk away and leave the believer, then it was uh, the believer's choice, of course, uh, according to Corinthians. And you can go back in last week's lesson to look at all those. But tonight, we're going to start in t- uh, verse 12. We'll touch more on verse 17 next week. It kind of goes a little bit better into that. There's a little bit of a... Uh, a break in there, but uh, for the rest of it, we're going to talk about it. And like I said, this is God speaking very plain to the nation of Israel. There's nothing ambiguous at all about this. It's amazing to me sometimes that when we read the Word of God, we feel like that, you know, what's hitting in here? What's what's the actual underlining message? How many of us have ever played uh, Bible roulette, where you open up the Bible, wherever it falls open, you just read those verses, and what does that say to me? And we try to figure out what God's trying to tell us today. Do I buy this new car or not? Let me just open it up and point. And we read through it and it says, yes, buy that new car. No, we don't ever do that. But sometimes we can read into Scripture what's not actually there. And we need to be very cautious about doing that. That's why when we study the Word of God, we want to find out what it says. Not necessarily what it says to me, but what says the Word of God. And when we get into this passage of Scripture right here, God is very clear about what he's talking to, uh, talking about and what's going on with the nation of Israel. Uh, he starts to talk about the people here and, and the hypocrisy that they have. The hypocrisy that they have in their, uh, well, their covenant with their wives, their covenant with their spouses, their covenant with the covenant of God, and the way that they deal with one another as a nation. Uh, they profane God's covenant. And, and as we read through this, it starts out by talking about this men, or these men, the men that uh, doth this is going to be cut off. And, you know, what men is he talking about? When we, when we look at this, and this really takes us back to last week, it's re- simply being a response to what we already covered, those men who are engaging in, well, to put it simply, adultery. They're putting away the wife of their youth in order to take on a new wife. They are practicing in idolatry because of the new gods that they've taken up with their new wives, uh, that they are doing things that are against the will of God. Uh, the word here that he uses to cut off is the Hebrew word karath. I was looking it up and I actually spent, this is one of those times you get sidetracked. How many of us have like a Thompson Chain reference Bible? That we look at the center column and we follow it and then you follow it somewhere and you follow it somewhere and you can kind of get on a little rabbit trail. And this is one of those places where I got on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I found some interesting things about the word. The word karath is actually... To cut off, but it's more than just to cut off. It's not talking about losing salvation. We're not going to find in the Word of God, if we're willing to do the study and rightly divide the Word of God, where it talks about people losing salvation. We will lose blessings. We will lose that closeness with God. We will lose the joy of our salvation. We'll lose a lot of things, but we cannot lose our salvation. But when we look at this word, when he talks about being cut off, the same word is used in other places to indicate being destroyed, to being cut down, to being eaten uh, or consumed. It has a lot to do with a covenant uh, being cut off. The same word is used there. I think I put it on your outline, Genesis 41 and verse 36. The word in there, perish, that the land would not perish. The same word is used there as well. In the Hebrew, the word system, the writing system is 
can be somewhat difficult for us to interpret. Uh, Dr. Ben Shaw put the verb phrasing this way. You could take one word, the stem word, the root word. It's basically a three-letter Hebrew word that can have seven different possible stems to it. You'll hear me talk about that sometimes, the kuel, the piel, hiphael, nifel, uh, hiphael. And, and these, basically what they mean is that depending on where the vowel marker would fall on this particular word, it would mean to, well, cut themselves, to cut someone else. To cut themselves bad, or to cut someone else bad, or to cause someone to be cut. And this particular word that is here, God is speaking, and he's saying, I am going to cause them to be consumed. Basically, he's going to withdraw his presence and allow that covenant condition to fall upon them. Anybody remember what the covenant stated? If you will do my word, my follow my commandments, then I will bless you effectively. But if not, what? I'll curse you. I will allow the things of this world to consume you, to take over. We've looked at Isaiah chapter 5 several times through this study. And as God in Isaiah chapter 5, he removes his protection from that vineyard, then the storms were allowed to come in. The pestilence were allowed to come in. The problems were allowed to come in. Well, what happened to the nation of Israel as they departed from that relationship with God? Well, he removed his presence. He allowed the Babylonians to come in. He allowed the Persians to come in. He allowed the Greece, uh, Grecians to come in and eventually the Romans to come in. He allowed this all to happen. And he's telling them plain once again, if you're going to break my covenant, if you're going to break my will, then this is what's going to happen. You're going to be cut off. You're going to be destroyed. Then I'm going to stand aside and allow these things to happen. And of course it's happened throughout the years. So these are the men. And he goes on to say not only these men but also the masters and the, um, how does he put it, master and the scholar. The master and the scholar were two interesting words as well. When I look those up, the master, at the core of it, indicates someone who has their eyes open. We use similar expressions today, don't we? How many of us have ever been naive and were said to be walking around with their eyes closed? I've been naive about many things. I'm still very naive about some things. It's a... Uh, it's a little bit frustrating sometimes when people will laugh at you because you're naivete. And, and it just happens. You know, it's not, I, I just, some things I don't think about, don't pay attention to, and I can get caught up in some things. I'm, I'm very naive with that. I'm naive with medicine. I remember I had to have a procedure done, and I, I don't even like to take aspirin. I just don't. It's not, there's not a religious concept behind it with me. I just, I just don't like to. I would rather whine and complain and have him to take care of me. But I had to have a procedure done one time. And they said, well, now, we're just, you're a big guy, so we're just going to give you a little bit of this, and it'll help you relax. The next thing I know, I'm in the recovery room waking up. I mean, it just, it dropped me out like that. I'm, I'm naive to that. Sometimes we're naive and our eyes are closed. But the word master here is just the opposite of that. That's somebody who has their eyes open. They know what the Word of God says. They understand the truth that is behind the Word of God. They are the teachers in Israel, the high priests, the prophets, the ones that were supposed to take care of the reading of the Word, the expounding of the Scripture, and yet they still didn't do what God would have them to do. It's one thing not to know and break the will of God. It's another thing to know it and to deliberately break the word of God. The word for scholar is someone who is basically having their eyes opened. 
Remember what I said about the verb forms that they had. It's someone whose eyes are being enlightened. They're being enlightened to the truth. And this is talking about the upcoming priest or the nation of Israel even. People who should be learning the truth, but yet are still rejecting it. How many times have we in our own lives had the divine enlightenment, Brother Hargis would be proud of me there, the divine enlightenment to a particular scripture, but then not apply it to our life? When the God of this universe reveals something to us or illuminates the truth to us, we have the responsibility to adhere to that, to apply that to our life, and to make use of it. If we understand and know the truth of the word of God and do not do it, we are in disobedience toward God. It's as simple as that. We know to do the right thing and we don't do it. Guess what James says? It is sin. I'm not going to be held accountable for that, am I? Well, I don't know. What's the word of God say? I know what I could say, but the word of God says you will be held accountable to it. We're going to be held accountable for those things. Once that knowledge comes in, once we have that understanding, if the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, stop smoking, if the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, stop watching this TV show, if the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, stop going to this type of movie, and I do not do it, at that moment in time, I am in willful disobedience to God. The nation of Israel were in willful disobedience to God. The tabernacles of Jacob that he was referring to here is just simply that. The houses or the tents in Israel. All the homes that were in Israel. They're going to be overthrown. They're going to be cut out if the nation of Israel doesn't follow in behind the will of God. And what happened to Israel? A, num a number of occasions that God would exile them from their land. And he would always keep the remnant, bring the remnant back. But yet at the same time, he would fulfill his word. So they would practice this insincere or immoral worship, that they would bring a sacrifice to the altar. They would lay it down. And this is what we talk about uh, in verse 13. And they have done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and with crying uh, out, insomuch as he regardeth not the offering anymore. Now just think about what's being said there. Sometimes if you watch the news, you'll notice that people from the Middle East are very emotional. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I wish we could be more emotional sometimes. i got to tell you, as a pastor, you like to hear an amen every now and then. Amen. As a pastor, it wouldn't bother me a bit if somebody just stuck their hand up and said, Praise God. Praise be the Lord. It wouldn't bother me if somebody just kind of stood up and started shaking a little bit and just enjoyed that. We do that at ball games. I plan on doing that Saturday. When we beat Vandy. That's right. First time in four years. Anyway, nonetheless, but we, we do that at ball games. Well, why can't we do that in the presence of God? But when you go over to the Middle East, they are a little bit more joyful. They seem to be a little bit more emotional. And the priests, as they would bring these sacrifices to the Lord, they would weep and they would cry and they would shout and they would praise God over the sacrifices they were given. But remember what kind of sacrifices they were given? Blind and crippled. Lame sacrifices. And here again we have it illustrated to us that God is saying, you cannot disobey me and expect my blessings on your life. We can come in and we can shout and we can do all those things I was talking about. We can cut our hair the right length or what we perceive to be the right length. We can wear the right type of apparel or the right attire. We can have all the pieces in place. We can memorize the songbook and know what to sing. We can even read the scripture and know what the scripture says. We can pray a beautiful, elegant prayer. 
But if our heart is not in it, if we're not doing it for God, if we're not being willful, obedient to God, then what does it matter? And this is what was going on with them. They were doing the outward show really good. In fact, even when we get to the time of Jesus, they were still doing the outward show really good. You looked at them and they stood on the street corners and they prayed and they, they shouted to God and they just thought oh, how, how marvelously righteous they were. But Jesus said, it's like whitewashed tombs. You praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Why is it that you say, call me Lord, Lord, and then do not the things that I tell you to do? Think of this high priest giving a symbol that he should know is a picture of Messiah. The perfect spotless lamb of God to come and to redeem mankind. But yet as he lays it on the altar, it's blind, crippled, or unfit. And then still proclaim, glory be to God. Do we do that in our own lives today? I'm afraid that we do sometimes. I'm afraid there's times in our lives that we bring to God things that attitudes, ideas, actions that we would never present in the workplace, that we would never display to anybody of any importance here on earth, but yet we'll bring it into the presence of the God, a presence of God, and never think about it twice. God's not obligated to bless any of us if we are in disobedience toward him, if we are in outright rebellion against his will. And whether we're sinning in just one small place, one simple little sin that we've got hidden that nobody else knows about, or maybe it's just blatant, God is not obligated to bless us. Sometimes God does. Sometimes God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering, and I've got to tell you, it surprises me. I just don't understand it. And I'll tell you from my own life, I do not understand why God has been so generous and gracious with me. I really don't. If I was him, I'd got rid of me years and years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that to be funny. I'm telling you the truth. I know how I am. I'm like David. I can stand before God and say, my sin's ever present before me. I, I understand who I am. I understand where I've come from. And I know that I've got a long way to go. And for the life of me, I can't understand why a holy, righteous God would look at me and say, you know what? I still think I can use you. But whether it's a small sin or whether it's a great sin, God's not obligated to bless. And I wonder how many people this Sunday will go to church after a night of partying. I wonder how many people will wake up in their home living with someone out of wedlock and go to church. I wonder how many people will use drugs and go to church. I wonder how many people will do all sorts of things and go to church. I wonder how many pastors will do the same thing. It's easy to point out certain pastors that have fallen from grace, if we can say it that way. We, we know the ones without mentioning their names. We've seen them on TV. And we wonder the question, are they repenting because they were caught or are they repenting because they're sorry before God? It's not just TV pastors that struggle. And it's not just pastors that struggle. Let me tell you, all of us have to worry about it. We need to come to God with a clean heart. We need to come to God knowing that our sins are forgiven, trying to leave things on the altar, lay them down before God. To say, God, cleanse me. I'm a sinful man and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Help me be better than who I am. Help me be not like these. Help me bring my gift before you and offer it to you in holiness and purity. Once again, I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm talking about losing that fellowship, losing that closeness, losing that joy 
of salvation. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he encouraged them to examine themselves before they partook of the Lord's Supper. And it's a very terrifying verse, and I told, I think it was Tina there earlier, we was just talking about communion. And one of the reasons I struggle with giving communion or having uh, taken communion is because of these verses. Because I know how we are. And I'm not saying this church in particular, I'm not pointing out anybody in this church. I know how I am. I know how human nature is. And sometimes just to not be thought less of, we'll go ahead and take of it. Knowing that the Holy Spirit's already dealt with us on something. But yet the word of God says because they've taken it un, um, um, how's the word? unworthily, that some of them are sick. And some sleep. And that terrifies me. I don't want to be the cause of people dying because of rebellion. Although people do die because of rebellion. This is New Testament stuff. This is not Old Testament. Corinthians is New Testament. When he says that there are some sick among you and some that have died or asleep, that was in the New Testament church. When Paul, or was it not Paul, but Peter had Ananias and Sapphira carried out before the presence because they lied to the Holy Spirit, that was New Testament stuff. That's not Old Testament things. That is in the age and the day that we live in. It's a horrible thing. It's a dreadful thing. It's a fearful thing. To fall into the judgment hands of an almighty God. But yet these priests, the people would bring the sacrifices to the Lord and present them before him and cry, praise be to God, holy is his name. Singing the songs of the redeemed and living with hidden sin or even open sin in their lives. Any questions or comments? Jesus goes on to teach that when you bring your gift to the altar in Matthew chapter 5, that if you remember that you have an ought against a brother, a brother has ought against you, to leave your gift. Go to them, make reconciliation. Then come back and present your gift. He wants us to approach him with a clean and pure heart. When we come to service on Sunday morning, do we come with a clean and a pure heart? And I'm talking to the church. I'm not talking to people who are, who are lost. People who are lost, I praise God that they come just the way they are. That doesn't bother me. If I, I, I said something the other day where I was talking about somebody asking somebody to move because they were in their seat. If somebody comes in here that doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior and they smell funny or they look funny or they may not be wearing the, what we consider the appropriate thing, we still invite them in. We put them wherever they're willing to sit and listen to the gospel being preached because that's the message that they need to hear. But once they get saved, then this is the message that they need to hear, that we need to hear. We need to be clean before an almighty God. We need to be holy before him. When we come to church on Sunday morning, we need to be in prayer before we come to church. And I'm not just saying clean up on Sunday morning. You know what? We need to be in prayer before we enter into the workplace on Monday morning when we get home. I went to Jim Simbla's church one time in New York. I remember to this day the message that he preached. And he was talking about going through the streets of New York. And you may not even do anything. But when you got home at the end of the day, you still needed a shower. Because the grime just had a way of settling on you. In our lives, we need to have a daily cleansing ritual. We just need to go to God each and every day to cleanse ourselves. Just to say, Lord, forgive me. Help me get over this. Take an earnest, realistic look at ourselves. Not our holy, pious self-righteous attitudes of what we want to be. But through the word of God, through honest eyes, look at our lives and say, 
does it line up with what the standards of what God wants me to do is or not? Verse 15, he gets into talking about purity. This is going back to the marriage that they had, the, the wedding. The, well, what was the, the pattern that we looked at last week, God's desire? We looked at Genesis when it said that for this reason shall a man leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and they two shall be one. That we leave those lesser relationships in order to pursue after that relationship that he's created us for. That we cleave to one another, chase or pursue one another, and that we become one. And here we have people who are one cutting themselves apart in order to go chasing after someone else. We have a friend of ours who's been divorced for many years now. Sometimes it just seems like a few days. I had a pastor friend telling me that he happened to know him as well, and he saw the boy, the, the man, in a coffee shop with a woman that wasn't his wife when he was still married to his wife. Him would know who I'm talking about. It does, doesn't matter who it is. But I wondered if he would take his wife to the coffee shop and treat her and pursue after her in the same way that he pursued after that other woman, if their love would have grown cold for one another. If he would have pursued after her with the same intensity as he did this new woman, how would his relationship flourished? The children that they had together, how would they be today, 15 years later, 13 years later, whatever it happens to be? 13 years growing up, split between homes, because of willful sinning in someone's life. God wants us to be pure. He, he tells them here that we're made as one. One even in their spirit. That we should be together in that unity. And he goes on to say that we might seek a godly seed. Now I don't believe that it's necessarily God's will for every married couple to have children. Sometimes it just don't happen. We live in a fallen world. Some things, sometimes bad things happen to good people. I got a brother, my brother Donnie, the oldest brother, would be a super dad. I can't imagine a man that would be a better dad than my brother Donnie. He's got a good heart. He's a fun-loving guy. He's, he's just a really good, never been able to have children, him and his wife. Then we know people that just, you wonder, why do they even have kids? They're, they're still children themselves, or at least why they still act like children. They may be 40 years old, but they... They have no real discipline in their own lives, and yet God seems to give them us because we live in a fallen world, and things happen. But ideally, I believe that God does desire for a good, godly offspring. And if we do have children, if we have grandchildren, we have kids in our lives, I think that we have a responsibility to them to teach them about who God is, to share the gospel message with them, to reveal to them who God is. It should never be just wealth to well. We'll let them discover it when they get of age. That's not what the Word of God tells us to do. The Word of God tells us that we teach our children. And when they have questions, we answer those questions. Not just because, well, that's the way it always is. And that's the way of, you know, we've always been taught. How many people today have fallen out of church because they were never given any real answers for why they believe what they believe? Even though the Word of God says, be ready always to give an answer for the hope which we have. But yet when our children ask us, well, you know, we're Baptists and that's what we believe. Maybe we need to get into the Word of God and study. Maybe we need to find out why the Bible is the inspired Word of God, not just man. Maybe we need to understand why we practice and do things like we practice and do. 
because when they get older, they're going to ask these questions or somebody's going to ask them a question. And at that point in time, well, because that's the way my parents always did it, it's not going to be a sufficient answer. God wants us to bring up righteous children, godly children, children who know the truth. I desire for our children. Jaden, it tickles me to death to see her up here. I hope that Sarah and Whitney and Gabe, when they get older, and they start to get a little bit more maturity and can come up here and lead singing and studying the Bible. And I, I, I look for the day that we're able to do Bible drills with them and they, they are able to come and quote scripture to me. And I've got a, I've, I, well, I'm just going to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag. I've got a drawer full of toys in there and little gold coins and stuff just waiting for the kids to come up and give me scriptures and stuff. Till then, I'm playing with them. Some of them may be wore out by the time you get them. But <laughs> nonetheless, I, I look forward to that. We should train our children in the ways that they should go and teach them about who God is, about his greatness, about his power, his ability to minister to them and use them in life and to follow after him in that bright, beautiful relationship. So when they go off to college and the professor says, well, there's no such thing as God, the child can say, no, not so. Let me show you this book. Let me open this up and read to you. And you explain to me how 800 prophecies can all be fulfilled to the T. You explain to me how 40 different writers over 600, or 60 different writers over 400 years can write and never have a problem with one another, that the continuity follows through. You explain to me how every time it speaks about something scientific, that it speaks with accuracy. You explain to me how science and all the wisdom that man puts into it has changed and modified on a yearly basis, but the word of God has stayed the same since the day it was written. Yes, the languages have changed. We have the King James Version, the English Version that we use today. We may not be able to speak Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but we still have the word of God, and if we want to study it and find out what it says, we can stand toe-to-toe with them and give an answer. The word of God declares that we can it's amazing that Paul was able to stand toe-to-toe with some of the brightest, wisest men of his day and leave them speechless. The hostility that God has towards sin. So the Lord, verse 16, So the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, that he hates divorce. He hates their lackadaisical way of living. We live in a society today where everything is throwaway. We throw away cups and plates and forks. At least as I do, I don't want to wash them. We make a habit out of just getting rid of things. It wasn't that way. Brother David, I, I, I kind of uh, I look up to people like him because when they were growing up, if something broke, you fixed it. You repaired it. You just didn't go down to Walmart and buy a new one. You took care of the one that you had. And I think it was a great thing to do, but we live in a day when we have great ability and prosperity, and we have a lot of great things. Sounds like the church of Laodicea to me. But yet, everything seems to be thrown away. And we have people who are married for six months, a year, and they end up divorced. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there's some divorce in here. I know that there's been some in here that's been through that. And I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to say that you were wrong. That's not my job. But I am saying that we live in a society today that condones that. We live in a society today that condones abortion. We live in a society today that lifts up drug addicts and alcoholism. We live in a society that honors people who are immoral 
well, verse 17, and looks down upon people who have a value system. As Christians, we should have a standard. We should have a moral. We should have a belief system that we know why we believe it and we stand according to that. God was, I don't really want to say angry. I don't really even want to say frustrated. Certainly wasn't surprised. Maybe put off by the nation of Israel. After all that they had been through. After all the times that he had revealed himself in such a magnificent way. Yet they still come to him in such a lackadaisical way. They come to him honoring with their lips. But what not with their hearts. They come to him offering offerings but not of the pure offerings that he desires. It's amazing that people are able to approach a holy God in such an unholy and unpure manner. 